Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name's Phil, a mixing and mastering engineer. I hope you're all doing well out there and well, I've got a what I can only describe as a humdinger of an episode for you this week. I'm chatting with this week with Rod of Just The Ride. He's the vocalist of the band. And we chat about all sorts of things. In fact, we've chatted about so much and for so long that this is a split episode. So there's one part coming out this week and one part coming out next week. So enjoy. This week, we've got loads. It's a feature-packed episode, frankly. There's the crazy story of his teenage band success. I just, I just didn't know it was something that he'd experienced. Their unique approach to rehearsals and how they go about that and frankly their crazy gig story each moment it just feels like it's getting worse and worse and worse stick around i'm going to stop talking now here we go with the interview so today on the podcast i am joined by rodney of just a ride how are you i'm fantastic and yourself i'm alive you know got a nice cup of tea good that's better than being dead well quite what what more could you want so um as as always my first question is from a online random question generator um and my first question for you is what are you interested in that most people haven't heard of i don't know if i don't know if this is a good one but i quite like i quite like kind of obscure classic style video games and i'm obsessed with a game at the moment called geometry wars um which i'm trying to think if if we want to go really deep i think it first came about when there was a a game on the dreamcast called metropolis street racer which back in the day was like one of the first photo realistic or attempting to be photo realistic like driving games and i remember like seeing it you know these cars driving around piccadilly circus and thinking wow that's amazing i'm sure if i saw it now it would look it would look antiquated at best but there was a secret game on there which was called geometry wars and it's basically like you've got this little spaceship and it was it was taking advantage of of like um dual d-pad computer game controllers so one stick is used to fly your ship the other one is uh, to, to shoot in the direction you wish to shoot and you've just got these weird shapes that that appear and they're different baddies i guess so you have some that just stick around you have some that are on like a set flight path that are going backwards and forwards you have some that are following you have some that you shoot them and they multiply uh, and it's all to like trancey techno music and i just love it and i've got it on i've got it on my xbox on like a you know a classic games thing and i'm just absolutely obsessed with the moment because I have I have two small children. Um, my daughter is has just turned four, and I'm trying to get her into playing computer games. So like these old school, simple arcade games are absolutely fantastic for her to kind of get into that. You know, just trying to trying to get her off just watching television and get her into computer games because that's really wholesome. Um, but yeah, she's she's actually quite she's she's getting good at it now, um, and so yeah, I. I then, with my competitive edge, I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to get properly good at this. So I'm, I'm, you know, I've got my scores up pretty high, and, and every so often I kind of nip to the playroom if I'm having a rough day um, in my day job and just go downstairs, shoot a few geometric shapes, and, uh, yeah, just go from there. So Geometry Wars, it's one of the best, best, if you like that sort of thing, if you like old-style old computer games, not the actual classics, but replicating the vibe of the classics go and play geometry wars if you've got an xbox 360 <laughs> intriguing I've, I've i've never heard of it 
So if that's if that counts as as obscure, then then it does for me. So there you go. Uh, so my first, I guess, serious question for you is: How did you get into uh, music in the first place? Well, I I guess I got into music quite early. I always wanted to learn a musical instrument, and I would hassle my parents um, at a very young age, sort of probably probably when I started junior school they said when you go to junior school so for, for anybody who's not from from the UK I think that's like seven or something like that like year three sounds about right I, I've no idea sounds about right yeah um and they said you can you can learn to play any musical instrument you want and that was the first year they offered drum lessons so I thought you know I will I will annoy them as best I can and I'll go for drum lessons so uh yeah I, I actually started playing drums like quite quite young I'd always been kind of into music I just I just loved singing um you know I guess my first ambition was to to be the singing voice of a Disney character which I'm not sure if I'll ever ever achieve but I I will give it a good go one day um and yeah yeah just really really got into into playing playing drums um and then as I got a little bit older uh, I think it was sort of like secondary school I I met a friend who who was like a very good friend through 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 school and um he was a bit of a multi-instrumentalist his father was actually a music teacher and one of the things his father would do um is put on uh like a i don't know like an exhibition of of his students playing cover songs and when he found out like i you know i played the drums you know you'd go around his house and and they had like a garage set up with just full of instruments so you know we just start playing and all this kind of stuff and then very quickly they realized i could sing and it was like right get off the drums because you know when you when you're like 11 probably like 11 12 it's quite hard to find a boy especially it, that would that will get up and sing in front of people you know it was it wasn't seen as like i don't know probably wasn't seen as a particularly like masculine thing and and obviously like the the the, the stage fright the nerves um which i, I just don't really have um i don't know there's probably probably some probably some sort of you know deep rooted psychological problem um that i haven't addressed um but yeah you, you know so so from from sort of like 11 12 every every school term or whatever we would we would do like a concert and you know we started off playing covers and and over maybe probably the course of like 18 months just started like okay well, have you thought about writing your own songs um started doing started doing that and um and ended up, I don't know how it happened. We got entered into some sort of like songwriting competition for um, BBC Three Counties Radio, and we won. And we actually got a, a day recording at Great Linford Manor, which is a really awesome recording studio. Uh, I'm trying to think who recorded there. Um, I think I think it's Pete Pete Winkleman owns it. He's like the big dude in in Milton Keynes. Um, trying to think there was someone famous who recorded that i know sixth i believe recorded their debut album there uh but there were some other big bands possibly like skunk and nancy but it, it was it was like a proper recording studio and that was probably when i was about 14 and we did we did this demo here and, and really quickly it just ended up um ended up doing a publishing deal ended up getting a record deal and you know i was i was kind of a touring musician from like 16 to 19 um, you know, um, in, in a, in a different band, not the band just arrived that I'm in now in a, in a band called Violent Delight, uh, who were like a pop punk metally kind of band kind of, I think, um, we were, we were our record labels version of busted probably. 
Um, but it was a great experience. Got to work with uh, some awesome producers and songwriters. I did a lot of writing with uh, Steve Jones, um, who was the guitarist in the Sex Pistols. Um, yeah, put out a record, went and toured with loads of cool bands. Um, bands like um, A, Hell is for Heroes. Um, got to play some awesome shows. You know, we played like the inaugural Download. Yeah, just who else did we play with? I think we played with like Simple Plan, Good Charlotte. All you know, it was it was kind of crazy. You know, um, it it was a bit of a, a bit of a wild ride. I was um, not expecting this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so just did kind of did, kind of did all that, but you know, the music industry isn't a kind kind place, and um, you know, it's really really difficult kind of growing up in that. Um, we had. You know, I guess probably from like the first few years was like pre- seemed to be pretty well received, and then I think there was a bit of a pushback on like how are a bunch of literally teenagers. You know, I, I, it was funny like signing the record deal, you need to get your parents to sign it because you can't you can't do it do any of that. Um, you know, there was, a, there was probably a bit of a pushback. We were you know all the big magazines at first were kind of like quite kind to us, and then something cha- something changed and we started being a bit like derided and, and you know, it, it didn't work out. You know, we look at the end of the day, we, we, we basically managed to do all of the things that I think a lot of, um, a lot of musicians dream about, you know, so I'm very thankful, very thankful for that, you know, I've had a few top 40 singles, you know, put out an album, played with pretty much played and met pretty much all, all the bands that I idolized growing up, you know, you meet people like, you know, Metallica, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Iron Maiden, like, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, all of it. But it's it's such a strange kind of world. But by the time I was sort of like 19 and we kind of got, you know, dropped by a record label, it, it, I was done with music. <laughs> I was just... Really? Yeah. I mean... It, you just you just had enough? Just, yeah, it just wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. I just kind of was like... I, I don't know. And, and, and I think, you know, I did I did a couple of bands afterwards trying to get back into it, but I had... I'd kind of tasted, you know, being like a professional musician. And, and, and probably my biggest regret is that it all happened too early. You know, one day I was at school and the next minute, you know, you're doing deals for hundreds of thousands of pounds. You know, you, you have more money than you know what to do with. And you're a kid and you have no concept of you have to work for this. Like this is a profession, you, you know, and, 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 you know, a lot of people say like the industry is just full of people that are going to tell you, oh, everything's great until it's not. And then they're just going to stop talking to you. I mean, that's exactly what happens. Um, but yeah, you know, and and then I remember like there was a couple of like really big mistakes that, that we made, you know, when we got dropped, I think our manager organized, it was like, okay, we've got some things on the table we could do. We're going to buy, you know, 10,000 copies of your album. And do you want to go on a co-headline tour with Biffy Clyro? but it's like self-financed, you know, there's no hotels, there's no this, there's no that. And our band were like, cause we were kids and we'd only ever known a pretty luxurious um, lifestyle. We were like, I'm not going to do that. That's mad. And and we were like pretty much passed on it, you know, and it, you know, the rest is history. And then, and then when I did other bands afterwards, I think something that was really um, played against me, you know, usually you'd think the experience of doing all that would, would really set you up to get back on it. But I mean, when I, when I, when all of this was happening the first time, it was sort of like 2001 to 2003. Um, 
And that's a very different industry to three or four years later when you're, okay, you, you're a little bit older, a little bit wiser, you're trying to get into it. But what was happening then was like the birth of MySpace and streaming and all of this. And um, yeah, we, I was just thinking about, no, it's all about don't share your music, get a record deal. And um, we, we, you know, we were kind of like acquaintances with the band Enter Shikari. They're from, they're from my hometown, St. Albans. And I remember talking to those guys about like, why are you giving your music away for free? Are you mad? You know, you're not going to get a deal. And it's like, you know, giving, giving awful advice. Luckily, thank God they didn't take any of it. Um, but, you know, it was like, why would you give that away? No, you need to get a record deal to be successful. And then all of a sudden, like, when their album came out, it was like, woof, this is, this is incredible. You know, you're getting top five album, basically independent. Um, and, uh, and yeah, th- then I was just like, you know what? I need to, I need a break from this all. And, uh, yeah, it took about 10 years out from music and it was only when, um, when, uh, Drew, who's a guitarist in, um, in just a ride, who briefly was in Violent Delight, he was a replacement for the uh, original guitar player, Tom, while the band was pretty much falling apart when he got in touch and was like, listen, I need a singer. Why aren't you doing music? Just give it a crack. And that's kind of how I got back into it and uh, haven't really looked back since. It's, uh, y- you know, you realise what you really love to do, you know. So it was a reluctant thing, getting back into music at first. Getting back into, yeah, getting back into music, actually. Like, he sent me, I think he sent me, like, a Facebook message or maybe I saw, like, a Facebook post he put. And I, I'd actually, in the time that I'd not done music, I had kind of got a bit of an obsession with karaoke bars because, like, I, I love singing, <laughs> like, I love performing. Oh, and I can't imagine like, anywhere worse. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and well, for somebody who loves Disney songs as well, it's like perfect. You can just whack on like your Disney playlist and you can, you know, crank them out. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, I think I was actually coming home from karaoke and he, I, I, he either sent me a message or I saw a post and I was like, yeah, I could do that. I mean, I was, I was always a bit of a, a bit of, um, bit of an enigma with, with, with with friends because I moved away from my hometown and I made like a whole new group of friends who didn't know me as someone who'd ever done music before. You know, my wife, um, before just a ride, got together and we started playing gigs, had never seen me play music. And, you know, my, my friends from childhood would always think of, oh, Rod, music. Whereas a lot of my new friends just they didn't see that. Maybe, maybe Rod who likes to do karaoke every so often. Um, so so yeah it was it was it was kind of strange go and 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 sort of things i would do or i would say is like you know he goes like an open mic place or or or, or something and someone's on and i and i'd be really honest about oh this this actor this actor are awful it's like oh, they really should tune their instruments and people used to say stuff to me like well you know it's really hard to go and do that you're not going to do it are you and i just was i i you know I, i'm not i'm not like braggy or showy i'd be like oh okay yeah fair enough but inside i was thinking well yeah i could do that i could do it better as well but you, you know have I, but at the end of the day <laughs> yeah i have done i've been there i've done that like it's it's cool but you know they do have a point they're doing it right now but you know for me it's not like it's not like in a in a patronizing way it's like a you know if you want people to appreciate what you're doing um you know play in time tune your instruments and uh and sing in tune these are basics <laughs> but you know you, you're just you you know you process music in a different you process music in a different way and uh yeah now now i can go yeah look at me i can do it <laughs> the band got together 10 years after after violent delight ended so how how did how did it happen how did you all kind of get together in the end as as um, just arrived so drew 
Drew had um, kind of gone off, and it, he's a, you know he's a really talented guitar player, but he had done the whole maybe different from me. I'd gone. I want to do originals. If I'm not doing originals and people don't like my music, I'm not going to put myself out there. Drew was a lot more of he's a amazingly talented um, guitar player and, you know, very much had a career as a player. You know, he does, um, you know, still does. He does he does session work for, for, for other artists. Um, I think before we got on the podcast, we mentioned, you know, he, he plays with uh, Boy George and Culture Club. Um, he was previously um, guitarist in the band Inglorious. Um, oh yeah, yes, um, and had done a load of load of different bands and different sessions and and, and all sorts of stuff. He, he does a lot of theatre shows. He'd done We Will Rock You. He's done Rock of Ages. You know, he's he's like a bit of a go to guy for rock guitar in the theatre scene as well, but. At the same time as that being absolutely awesome, and you know, especially being a band like Inglorious, you get to play awesome gigs, and they've got great, great following. You're kind of, you know, you're playing guitar in someone else's band, you know. And one thing about Drew is um, he's a writer as well, and that was probably an area of of of, of his music that wasn't wasn't getting across. And um, yeah, he was like, you know, um, I want to, I want to. Get, get my writing out there and I also uh, you know he's a big lover of kind of the I guess the 90s alternative scene very much like the grunge um maybe I, I think nowadays we see a lot of this grunge resurgence and I think on some level it's like do you sound like Nirvana um is very much the thing but I think you know I, I you know I don't want to speak for him but I feel like Drew's very much more Alice in Chains Stone Temple Pilots a bit Pearl Jam you, you know, um, you know th- those different sort of bands, maybe like Mud Honey. You know, the you know grunge was gr- grunge became as a bit, a bit of a catch-all term, and I think yeah, to the casual listener, grunge is Nirvana. But but th- there were lots lots of different things going going on within that. And he was like, you know, I'm really influenced by by those sorts of artists. And and we've him and I have spoken that, that something that's quite interesting of people from like our generation is we kind of discovered grunge not at the time. It's when the supergroups of the early 2000s came out, like your Velvet Revolvers, your your Audio Slaves came about. And it was like, oh, wow, you know, Chris Cornell, wow, he's amazing. And, pe- and you know, maybe older friends or older brothers, whatever, would be like, yeah, but have you heard Soundgarden? And, like, of course, you'd know of Soundgarden, but you wouldn't necessarily go back and, and explore explore those records. You know, I was, I was a big fan of Velvet Revolver when they came out. You know, I, I had been a fan of... Um, I had actually been a fan of Stone Temple Pilots, but it was only the the, the last album they did before they split, which was uh, which is Shangri La Di La. Um, so I hadn't really gone through it. And, and also, uh, again, when we were, when, you know, if you're t- talking about the early 2000s, mid 2000s, streaming wasn't around so much. You had to go and buy these CDs. So it's like, yeah, I'll go buy the Velvet Revolver album and I've got Shangri La, but I don't have access to the entire STP back catalogue. So I couldn't really know it in, in, in that vein. So, yeah, you know, we've kind of, you know that, that, like I said, that that Audio Slave, that Velvet Revolver, those. You know when they started to become legacy legacy bands, or you know Foo Fighters became big, and you look back at Nirvana and, and all of those things, um, and yeah, you know we're really influenced by by that sort of music. And it was like, well, you know, there's very much like um, I think it's great that there is 
there's a bit of a resurgence or there has been probably in the last five or six years in that kind of like classic rock style that, you know, Inglorious are very much at the forefront of, you, you know, you've got bands like uh, Those Damn Crows, Wayward Sons, uh, Scarlet Rebels, all doing doing that. But I think, you know, I think there's now room for the next step for, from that and like looking looking at that, that 90s, uh, grunge and I think grunge is also a really interesting genre because I think it very quickly molded into something different you know um you you see a real link you know and we and we grew up on like you know pop punk um new metal and I think like the the weird thing is like well well the pop punk thing you know when green day offspring kind of came out that was a that was almost a reaction to grunge and then you find like a lot of the new metal is almost like the evolution of of grunge so now you know we're kind of approaching that sort of music having you know made those links in reverse almost um and yeah it it was like you know drew just was like yeah i want to do something that's my own thing i want to write the music that i want to hear that i don't hear anywhere else and and yeah he, he sent me he sent me some tracks you know the way the way drew writes and kind of the way we work right is um drew kind of like comes up with us with like a song structure you know it's not a bunch it's not a collection of riffs he's really thought it through um and you know how i first got involved with the band he just sent this one track over and said just write a part you know and and the the, cra- the crazy thing is is it's uh, you know and i hadn't really done i hadn't really done that kind of focus writing for a long time i i, I had continued to write music the whole 10 years but it was just like for myself and dabbled in lots of different genres and again just not really play it to anybody you just i don't know it was just something that i always did and uh, i heard this and i just had an idea of what i thought it should be and and like i played i played the demo before it had any vocals onto my wife and she just said there's no way your voice will suit this it's just not you and i kind of was like i think i'm gonna prove you wrong um but i had this idea (laughs) it's a vote of confidence yeah yeah exactly um but yeah i I put this I, i did this track i sent it back and I literally, like, I just got a phone call straight away, like, you need to do this band. Like, this is exactly what I want to what I want to hear. And the crazy thing is, it's like, you know, we've got the album coming out very shortly on the 25th of Feb, shameless plug. Um, and um, this tune, Standing Here, which is the first song we wrote, is the single that's going to lead the album. Um, so, and, and it is almost exactly how it was on the demo, which I think is quite cool and i thought that was like quite nice little um yeah kind of a nice little little thing to kind of push the album um so that's kind of how that's kind of how it it kind of came together and it did actually take quite a long time to be honest it started off as a writing project um you know we were writing um there were times even i was living abroad um and it was sending demos backwards and forwards you know like I said, I've always been recording music. So I've got like my own little setup to record vocals. Drew has his own stuff. And again, looking at like what he, what he would do as like, you know, a touring musician, you know, we, we would very rarely get in the same, get in the same room and do stuff, but we were just working on, working on songs, working on songs. And it was only a little bit later. We were like, okay, let's, let's find some people to go out and play a few of these, uh, you know, play a few of these songs to real people and, and kind of, start the whole start the whole band thing moving so i know you all live in different places which is obviously part of the reason why you um end up demoing and writing music in the way you do but where do you rehearse or perhaps even how do you rehearse as a band we don't 
<laughs> so what I, I I don't want to I don't want this to come across the wrong way because I think that there is room for it to to maybe sound sort of aloof. But one of the one of the reasons you know and and listen, I did this. You know when when you're a young kid and you rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, it's because you're not you're learning your trade. Do you know what I mean? You're learning. Um, your instrument, you're, you're doing all this. And, and we've always looked for people to play with us who are essentially like session musicians. A lot of people who are, you know, throughout the people that have played with us and, and, and whatever, it's a lot of people who are in, you know, functions bands, that, that you know, theatre shows, that, that sort of thing, because your job is to learn your parts so you can play. Um, so that's pretty much how we've done it. I mean, we would maybe rehearse once every three months. But that's more just to jam out and finish some songs or whatever. Um, and, you know, where we're kind of getting to now is, you know, booking more like runs of shows so that we can just go in for a day, do a one day, learn it all and, and, and smash it out. And that is something that, you know, it would be great if you could, you know, and, and I'm sure there are some incredibly talented, like 18 year old players who can do that, but they are the exception to the rule you know um and, and and yeah that that's the thing and also you know as you get older you know unfortunately i'm, I'm you know we're, we're all in our 30s um you know and we all have um you know it's the reality of things we all have uh commitments outside of outside of music we've all got our we've all, uh, we're quite lucky we all we all own our own businesses so we have a relative amount of flexibility but you know I'm a, I'm a father i've got my kids i can't be doing what i used to do when i was a teenager which is you know five nights a week rehearsing like there, there just isn't the, the time of the day. So the way I guess you factor that in is that you just make sure that everybody in the band, it, not just can play, but they are kind of conditioned to that. Learn your parts, get in a room and we vibe it out. Now I'm sure, um, you know, when you do a run of gigs, you know, the fifth gig will probably be slicker than the first. But I, I just think, you know, you can play to the level that, you know, we've got accomplished musicians in the band, like our drummer Alex. He he was in um, he was in the UK Foo Fighters, who are a great Foo's tribute band. Um, he was with them for ten years. You know, he does play like Taylor Hawkins. He's he's a phenomenal drummer, and he can just pick it up and uh, and go. Everyone knows their parts. Everyone just plays. <laughs> you know, and and that's kind of again, it's a luxury that that not everybody can have. But when you are doing things the way that we do things, um, it, it is essential really hmm. sounds like you've very carefully thought about it as a band to make sure that you don't have to do um lots and lots and lots of rehearsals to make sure that everyone um is locked in and has their has their part down that people do just um how do i put this self-motivate to to go and make sure that they just know what's happening without too many rehearsals which is Sounds like it's working for you, so. Yeah, I mean, but if you think about it, it's like, you know, I, I talk about, like, Drew doing doing Culture Club. It's like, you know, they have two days before they do a big gig. You know, it, that's that's really, you know, when you get more, probably more so in pop music, you know, when you put together a band to do a tour, you know, I'm sure if you, you know, if you were playing for Adele or for, you know, Girls Aloud, I don't know, I'm just, you know, the band doesn't, jam every week you know they they all come in and they learn their songs and they play and it's that it, i guess it's that sort of professional semi-professional musician at, attitude you know it's people that are used to that now it does make it harder like you know at the moment we're looking for bass player 
So we are looking in very narrow corridors because we, you know, we have to, we can't just, you know, I'm sure that there are many, many people who they, they have the potential to be great players and they're passionate and they want to do it, but we can't bring someone into the fold that is going to need to do a weekly rehearsal, you know, for six weeks to get tight. Cause we, you know, it, there's all sorts of like logistics, like we and and, and cost. It's it's incredibly expensive. Um, you know how how can you how can you do that when you, you know you're not you know you're not like in my early twenties. You know, three guys in a band living in a flat together and they just play all the time. You know, it, I'd I mean, in a way, I'd love that, but it's it's the reality. And and you know, it's it's yeah, it's 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 where you're at. And, and I think some some of the times, like we. You know, we talk about this quite matter of fact and, and I hope it doesn't like, uh, I don't know, ruin the sheen or ruin the magic of, of being in a band or what people perceive of, of, of bands. Like we talk a lot of the time about, um, you know, I think everybody kind of believes that, or they like to believe that everyone in bands is like, they're all just mates. And it's like, well, you know, really when, when you're, when you're like professional musicians and whatever, a lot, it, it's, it's a business. Like it's, it's, well, not, I don't want to say business in a negative way, but they are your work colleagues and it's great. It's great wherever you work, if you can really enjoy the company of the people that you're with, but first and foremostly, they are your work colleagues. They are not, you know, it, it, it yeah, you know, it's, it, 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 it is like that. And that's one of the reasons Drew and I get on really, really well. We've obviously known each other for 20 years. Um, First and foremostly, whenever we do anything in a band, we are, we're colleagues. We don't see it as, you know, we're friendly colleagues, you know, and it is difficult for like people coming in new and like the dynamic, because we obviously know each other, but it's not like, well, we're just thick as thieves and not letting anyone in or, or whatever, but we understand the boundaries of our relationship. Mm. I think there's going to be some people, maybe especially in, in bands when they're younger, who are listening to this, who will be absolutely shocked and maybe appalled by what you said about treating it as a business and things like that. But I think for maybe just as many people, it'll kind of be quite eye-opening about how they should think about their music and what they're doing, especially if they want to be serious about it and take it forward in that way. Absolutely. And I mean, like I was, I was listening to... Um one of your podcasts um actually earlier this week um kind of dealing with conflict in bands and i think a lot of kind of uh, you know that actually made me think a lot and, and i think there's there's probably quite a lot of crossover in kind of what i've been saying and, and kind of what you were discussing in you know where you know that's where a lot of bands fall apart because they can't separate those two things you know you have to you have to be ruthless in this business i'm really sorry but you you, you know there is you know th there is no you have to work out what it is you want. And also there's nothing wrong with going, do you know what's mo more, most important about the band that we're in is our friendship. That's great. That, that, and, and that is some bands, but then also the other, on the other side of things, um, you know, if your goal as a musician is to achieve your dreams in music, you know, you have to be able to sometimes come out of that zone of thinking of friendships and you have to think, well, you know, what is best for, for the band as a whole? What's best for my career? You know, are, is someone who I really love actually a negative influence? You know, th those are really difficult things to, to, to discuss, but those, those are the realities of, of the music business and, and probably the people that you look up to, the people that you aspire to, to be, 
they they're the ones who are strong enough to make those make those calls or to or, or to understand the dynamics of the relationship like i'm a me and andrew are huge kiss fans and i think that they are the archetype gene and paul are the archetype of a successful partnership that has led to you know a, a musical dynasty a, a, also a commercial dynasty but you know they i think they respect each other you know as friends but also equally as artists as 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 people with a with a um you know with a burning desire to achieve their uh, achieve their goals uh, and yeah you know it, it, there are so many people that flash in the pan but i i would say as as horrible and cold as it might sound and i'm sure that you know 15 year old me if i was hearing the things that i was saying i'd be like oh my god that's everything that's wrong with the industry and uh, you know we'll get into like writing with other people if you want like that's always a bone of contention but um but yeah you know this is this is the the reality do you want to be do you want to be true to to these i don't know i don't want to i don't want to sound too awful but these misguided values you know that that are idealistic but not realistic or do you want to you know it, it really depends what you want but if you want to have a career in this business if you want to write music that is going to um reach and and positively impact as many people as possible you're probably going to be having to think more like the coldness that i'm spitting out now than this idealism that is great it's it's probably what motivates you to do it in the first place but there is a you know there's a coming to reality at some point it sounds to me like you should do a podcast or write a book on this subject. <laughs> it feels like you have a lot more to say. And I I just want to throw that out there. Uh, I'm going to move over to, um, I'm not going to say happier things, but maybe slightly less serious things. What was your first gig like as Just A Ride? Actually, do you know what? Our first gig was pretty good, actually. I think it was, was it at the Water Rats, maybe in King's Cross? Um, and... I'm trying to think. It was I, I can't remember the name. I think it's Dead or Alive Promotions. They're actually a really good little promotions company. You know, I can go into I can go into all sorts about promoters, but um, I can't I, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. But he he's a really really good promoter. Um, someone who always you know, we've done a few gigs with them. I haven't actually haven't actually done a gig for, for for a little while with them, but always make sure the bands get looked after. Always you know really upfront about costs and splits and everything like that. Always pays the bands. You know. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was, it was a pretty cool gig. I'm trying to think there was something going on, I think that made it a little bit busier, but we got, you know, we got, we got a fair few people, people down and it was just, it was just a really nice kind of, um, you know, I mentioned how I had a group of friends who had never really equated me and playing music. And maybe when I mentioned, oh, I'm going to do a band, they probably maybe thought, we were going to get up and play a few covers and, you know, just, you know, the old, the old dad band, which, you know, I, I would love to do. I would love to do, you know, I've, I've been talking and I've been talking to a few of my friends. I, I'm sure I've, I love going off on tangents, so I will just continue to go off on one, but there's this, um, there's, there was this like when, when we were young festival with like all these like pop punk bands who weirdly enough are all still going. Um, but, um, you know, I, I've been saying to my mates for ages, I'm like, oh, has the music we grew up with become classic rock now? And it's like, yep, yep, it pretty much, pretty much has. But I was like, yeah, you know, I would toy with like, let's do a cover band where we play like some 41 and Alkaline Trio and Boy Sets Fire. And, you know, oh, will anyone listen to that? 
I would say yes now. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they probably, you know, friends that I brought down and whatever probably thought that, you know, we would get up, we would amble through some songs and, um, and people were really, really like, oh my goodness, like, you know, you, why did you stop doing this? Um, and I remember actually something that was, that was, you know, if we want to go kind of deep and quite interesting, but my, uh, my, my boss, I, I worked in, I worked in like hospitality, um, in kind of like operations, you know, and at the time I was kind of like, you know, okay, right. I want to, you know, I'm trying to walk the path to, to get into like being a director of the company and all this kind of stuff. And actually at the time in work, I was just kind of hitting a bit of a brick wall. Like I I managed to excel very quickly and I, you know, it, it, I probably had this period of 18 months where it was just going stagnant and I, and I could kind of feel people getting ahead of me. And, and my boss, he came to watch the gig and he said to me, do you know why you're not progressing? And I said, why? And he said, because I've just seen you play and that's what you love to do. And he said, I think about, he said, I think about running restaurants and building restaurant brands in the way you feel about rock and roll music. Right. And he said, there will be people who might be less talented than you in your field and your job, but they love what they do. And when you're going for those big roles, they can see right, right through you. Like when, when you interview for that position, that person is going to go, well, Rod, you might have, you know, you might have the skills, but you don't wake up every morning thinking, you know, I'm going to make this restaurant brand. And that's the fire that drives me. And he said, and that's why you're not, you're not suited for, you know, you're going to, you're going to hit a glass ceiling. You're not going to get, get further unless you are that passionate about this industry as you are about music. And I thought that was like, that was like, wow, that's, that's pretty like, it was a bit of a downer actually at the time, but it, it's actually been fantastic ad advice, um, really. And it really put a lot of things in into perspective and and his thing was like why why don't you i mean it's not like why don't you do this for a living because obviously like everyone knows it's a, it's a very difficult industry but he, he he just said to me when you look back on it do you feel like you you walked away from things that's just a little bit too early and i think now in hindsight i i think yes but at the same time i've been able to you know with just a ride you know in the last sort of two years we've really sort of set ourselves new goals and, and been a lot more realistic and realized oh, actually, you know, there is, there is kind of like a pathway that you can follow. And, and so far on, you know, we've kind of like, we're, we're kind of on the roadmap and, you know, we're going past all the right signs. So, you know, I'm under no illusion that, you know, you're going to become Bon Jovi, but there are ways that you can kind of, you know, get foothold in the industry. And, and, you know, there is like a checklist. If you do the right things, you put out good quality music, you you will get opportunities and you know let's see what happens there have have there been any uh nightmare experience gigs and if they haven't with just the ride you can widen that out um to other bands if you'd like if you've got some amazing stories i yeah i, I mean, i've got some not sure if they're uh, i'm not sure if all of them are suitable for podcasting you know uh, but feel free to uh, anonymize where needed <laughs> Uh, no, well, I'll, I'll I'll go with the just arrived one. So we recently played, um, but it was just a gig where kind of like everything went wrong. I mean, like I'm sure we're not the only band that COVID has, you know, derailed certain things with. You know, it's been a really really difficult time for so so many people. I mean, like I don't think you could find a single person in the world who hasn't, you know, got some sort of 
negative impact. You know, luckily for us, you know, we're just talking about a gig getting a bit skewed. So let's put some perspective on it. But we were we were doing a gig um, at a venue called Off the Cuff in um, Hearn Hill, and we were meant to do it with friends of the band, a band called Dead Star Talk, who are probably best described as the Danish Oasis. Um, they're really, they're really, really good. I mean, I love all sorts of music. Like I was a really big kind of indie fan. I think I'm probably of that age. So, you know, for me, you know, Oasis were a huge deal, you know, when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, when you're really starting to discover music. And I love bands like Cooler Shaker, Pulp, Suede, Elastica, like all, all of that sort, all of that sort of stuff. So I've got a real soft spot for them. And, and, you know, one of the great things about social media and uh, and all that is you, you can connect with bands from all around the world. And, you know, for maybe about a year, I've been speaking to uh, Dead Star Talk, uh, Christian, who's a, who's a singer in particular, and um, we'd managed to book a show together. And uh, one of the cool things, which I wish we had um, here in the UK, is uh, that I think the Danish government have like a fund for Danish acts to go out and play in different countries so it was all kind of set up. They were they were getting like fifty percent of their costs covered by like a you know an arts grant, which is fantastic. Um, and yeah, you know, it was all it was all go. And then unfortunately, a few days before they were going to, uh, we were going to do the gig. The bass player of Dead Star Talk, his wife is a teacher, and she caught COVID. And everyone was negative, so it was fine. But then we started thinking, well what if it shows up after they've flown in and they now can't return to Denmark? Um, and we, we made a, like, we were like going backwards and forwards and like, Oh, what, what, what can we do? And eventually it was like, it's just not worth the risk. You, you know, cause we were like, they, they were, that they, they were at the point where, you know, we we're a few days out and it's like, you could get refunds on everything. And it's like, probably best to do that. But no worries, the promoter said, just a ride. We'll still put on the gig. It'll be cool. So here's here's a little checklist so that you can find out if promoters are any good. Get to the gig. Now, I was always told this by our old tour manager in VD. If you've got this feeling that this gig isn't going to go well, right, you can kind of smell it in the air when you get there. You know, first one you look out for is, are the staff expecting you? Oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, that's the that's, first one yeah but sometimes if the staff aren't expecting you you just have to think well do you know what it might be you know somebody who's new to the job it might be you know maybe you know you don't have the you don't have everybody who works at the venue especially like when you turn up in the middle of the day it might be it might be the the the, the boy or the girl who um who, who does the morning shift or whatever and you know maybe you know if they always do that why would they know anything about that and they said right the next one you want to check have a walk around the venue and have a look at the gig posters and have a look how out of date they are. <laughs> First one you want to look for is the monthly listings. Went, went, had a look around. I think the gig was November the 12th and the gig listing, the most up-to-date gig listing I could see in the venue was September. And I was like, this is not looking good. Then I went into the main room and welcoming us, welcoming us as we looked at the stage it's like this, this really smells bad and there was a there was some excrement on the floor in the middle of the room now it was it was fine it was a dog they had a dog in the venue but you know you you've walked into a venue 
Like they don't know, they, they don't seem to be expecting you. There's no posters up. Actually, no, no, worse than no posters up. When I had a little look round, I could see the posters that I'd sent to the venue just in the packet, unopened, right? And then you're like, and then there's just, there's, you know, a dog has fouled in the room. And, you know, and then this is the awful thing because you, you go up to that person in the bar and you're like, I'm really sorry, but there's been an accident in there. And, like, the guy was like, can you clean it up? I was like, I didn't do it. I, like, I'm, I've, I've we, you know, we've driven all, from all over to come here and you're asking me if I'll clean that up. Why didn't you just not let the dog in there? Like, I, I, anyway. And then it was like, then it was like, okay, right, let's just see how this is, it, this is going to be. They had no idea we were coming. Um, apparently, like, the manager of the venue had just, like, walked out on the venue the week before. So it, it like, the, to be fair, the, the the staff that were there were amazing and they they did their best. Promoter never turned up, right? Um, and then they didn't have any staff to put on the door to do tickets. And we'd sold tickets. So, and we'd sold tickets, like, you know, to, to, to some fans and we'd sold tickets to some friends. And, like, I'm always, you know, trying to think about how you come across. Now, if I've spent £10 on a ticket in advance... And there's no one on the door and I didn't need to pay for the ticket. I'm going to go away from that feeling a bit cheated. Like, why did I do this? Or what? Do, do, do you know, so, there, so there's that. Um, but in the end, we were just like, okay, well, do you know what? Say to them, because they were like, we can't have anyone on the door, whatever. Just let everyone in for free and we'll just refund everybody who bought a ticket. Or we had albums with us. We'll give everyone an album, you know. But then while we were playing, and then it was quite cool because, the, you know, people started to come in then obviously that message didn't get put across to all the staff. So while we were playing, someone then comes in and they're thinking, oh my goodness, the people who's walking in are not paying. The band aren't going to get any money. They start removing people while we're playing the show. And it was just like, oh no, it was just all crazy. It was all crazy. And then after this, it was like, I mean, to be fair, like then somebody was like, well, I'll try and, you know, I'll pay for some tickets. So some people pay for tickets and I mean, there was like these three people that paid for tickets while we were on our last song and they came in, they paid and then we finished and they were like, you know, and they take it out, you know, people are kind of miffed with the band. Um, so it was like all of this, like managed to get it all under control. It was, it was, it was fun in the end. Like the gig itself was good and we, we managed to, you know, managed to get some really good shots um, of, of the gig and managed to make like a little video and that's all cool. And a lot of the time, like with social media and stuff like that, you know, it's all a bit smoke and mirrors and you can get some good shots that, that make, make a good gig look like an incredible gig, you know? Um, and then at the end of it, the sound guy comes up to me and is like, yeah, have you got my money? I'm like, so what? <laughs> yeah, promoter said it was a hundred quid to do this. And I'm like, yeah, but it was meant to be four bands and it ended up being one. So then I had to give the sound guy a hundred pound. It was like, this is, this is really not good. <laughs> Did you uh, have some words with the promoter? Well, the, just never answered call. It was just oh, a disaster. Right. You know, just, just went completely AWOL. So um, off the cuff in Hearn Hill, fantastic bar staff, lovely people, but I can't remember the name of the promoter. Just avoid it like the plague. <laughs> Shame, because it was a great, great, great venue. And actually, to be fair, the sound guy was, it was, he was worth what we paid him, but, you know, didn't think I would be paying that. Yeah, that's... Wow. <laughs> I've, I don't think I've ever heard an experience that bad, if I'm really honest. 
Yeah, it was, you know, it was just one of these, like, I mean, I've done, I've done gigs like before where it's like, you know, three people and a dog, you know, that sort, that sort of thing. But this was the one where it's just like, I don't know, it's just like this, this comedy of errors that you just go like, man. And and that's why actually, like, one of the things that we do, and maybe when you're a bit older as well, you have the luxury of, you know, we've got some tour dates coming up and we do deals with the venues where we self-promote the gigs because, you know promoters great promoters are great but there are a lot of promoters that just think that their job is to call up some bands the bands do all the work and that's it you know and and it's probably um a, a case of people that think you know i throw enough bleep at the wall one will stick eventually and i'll make some money whereas like there are promoters that are you know that i know that i've i've I've, I've had promote my gigs in the past that like they're clearly out there hustling and they're, they're going to fill the room, you know, like that, that's part of, you know, they see it as a partnership between the band and, and the venue or, 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 and the promoter to, to, to put on a great night. And those are the promoters that you want to, you want to find, but I find they are difficult to find. So one of the best ways uh, is, is to, if you can, if you can front a little bit of money and it's risk, it's all risk, but you, you, you then at least are responsible. You're in control of what it is you can do. And with, with things, you know, there are so many like, um, you know, online ticket platforms and stuff that you can, you can promote yourself. I think even, even some of the big, um, big ticket companies, like ticket web or whatever, you can, you can set up an account and you can sell tickets to your own event and, you, know, you you can run it all it is extra work and not everybody has the time or the patience or maybe the the confidence to do it and yeah it can go wrong but at least you're the master of your own destiny it's what it's one of those trade-offs isn't it that you can do it all yourself but then you're not necessarily paying the money for a promoter for example to do that for you but you're paying in your time to to do all that stuff that's the trade-off so what, in your opinion, what's been the biggest success of the band so far? I think for us, the thing that, well, there's a couple, I would say. The big one for me is um, is, is kind of being noticed by um, Spotify editorial. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure how, you know, how much of the audience really know the ins and outs of, of Spotify. Um and you know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i personally think it's it's actually a really good thing um maybe that's maybe that's looking at it from a different um point of view but as a tool to promote your music i think it is priceless i think you do give up some of your well you the question is do you want a hundred percent of a very small thing or do you want a small amount of something that could potentially be very big uh and yeah so so with spotify there is there, there are two types of, of kind of playlists there are there are algorithmic playlists or there's three types of playlists actually there's algorithmic playlists there's um editorial playlists and there are um user created playlists so the the two big ones really that you that you want to want to hit are the algorithmic playlists and the editorial playlists and you know, we very much had this idea that we would we would be hoping that within kind of six to eight releases, we would be in contention for editorial. And I think we got it on our fourth, which was which was amazing. And, uh, you know, I think a couple, 
like, yeah, a couple of times we've been on um, a playlist called All New Rock, which is, you know, the the 50, you know, rock songs of the week. And that that's like a worldwide thing. Um, and, and, you know, you, you get played alongside some really fantastic bands. The last uh, song we released was called Not Enough. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was really funny is like when I was in Van Delight, you know, you would be on radio playlists with bands like Muse and Placebo. And all these years later, I'm on all new rock with Just a Ride with <laughs> Muse and Placebo. Hooray! You know, it's great. You know, wow. Like, I mean, yeah, it was just like picking up where we left off, except, you know, they've they've become absolute legends. Uh, and I'm, you know, back starting again. But no, it's, it's, it's cool. And, you know, you, you know, you know that your music is being heard by thousands of people, uh, which is fantastic because that is literally the best promotion that we can we can get. Um, and it's great. Like, I, I mean, I'm a bit of a like stats person. I love looking at stats. I love looking at analytics. And that's why you like Spotify. I, yeah, it's the best. It's fantastic. But you can see, you know, you can. It, it's it's a really good way to quantify what it is you're doing and if it is getting the results that you're hoping for. And, and, you know, it gives you that sort of real-time feedback. I think as well, although I'm probably of an age where you would have thought that my experience in the music industry would have been a post-streaming experience, because I got into it so, so young, I very much experienced the old-school music industry. You know, it was, you know, physical copies, getting on the radio, you, you know, when, when there wasn't streaming. There wasn't even high-speed internet. <laughs> you, you know, so shock horror I to some people. Yeah, and and the thing is, it's like, and, and the thing is, it's like, you know, you put out an album. It, here's here's a weird thing that you think about where years and years and years ago, we supported Violent Delight, my band. We supported the band Taproot on a one-off gig in Cardiff the day after the Download Festival, and we were like, "Wow, Taproot are a." big, big band, you know, they'd had a platinum, I think, I think they had a platinum selling album. Um, they were all over TV and we were just like, this gig is going to be amazing. We played that there might, there might have max been 30 people in the venue and you're like, what is going on? But the thing is, is because back in the day, you didn't get real time feedback like you get with Spotify. When uh, when an, a band puts out a song, they know instantly how many people are listening, right? So Taproot, they might have been on, you know, maybe cover of Kerrang. They might uh, they put out an album. They don't know until after the fact. Like, and, and this is the other thing as well. They might have had amazing first week sales. But once you've bought, like, how many albums did you buy, you know, back in the day, that you listen to once or twice and we're like, this is rubbish. <laughs> yeah, you know? quite a few. I'm not, I'm definitely not going to go and see that band when they play live, but all these people booking the tours are like, well, they've sold X amount in the first week. They're on this thing. We're going to book them at this venue. And it's like, oh, you know, it, oh, damn, you know. And then there's all sorts of other things, like if you want to go into, uh, go into stuff like, you know, buying on for tours and all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, maybe there would be, I mean, you, there were loads of bands I, I knew, you know, there would, there would always be some unknown band that gets on some massive tour and you're like, oh, right, okay, you've just bought onto the tour. Like, you've you've made a contribution. But you imagine, you know, you, you, you'd be making an educated decision, you know, someone, and I'm not accusing Taproot of this, like, they didn't do a buy-on or anything like that. 
But a small band might have gone, oh, look, Taproot are on tour. Let's pay X amount of money to get on this bill. And they would be disappointed if they paid to 30 people, wouldn't they? Because, I, I you know, I, I was thinking, we're going to play 2,000 people tonight. This is going to be amazing. A little bit smaller. You know, that, that was my... That, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, manager expectation. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, at least now with all this data, you, you kind of get a real idea of, of what's going on. I mean, I mean, you do and you don't. Like, if you, if you really dive into it, you do get an idea of what's going on. It's very easy for people to go, oh, look how many streams I've got. Like, I must be huge. It's like, yeah. Are they real? Do you know, even if they are real, are they streams of value? You know, people aren't look, a lot of people aren't looking at the right things you know you want to look at and actually like the, the the beta analytics on spotify are really really good now where you can see how many people are adding you to playlists on a daily basis um the, you know a really good you know how many people are saving your tracks and then i think for me the best bit of data you have is how many tracks each listener is listening to on average per day that's a really good one that's a very you know, good one yeah yeah you know like you can see and, and to also understand how different things affect it like it is great get on all new rock and you might get six seven like and, and we were very low down the list you know we're probably out of 50 tracks like anyone who doesn't know when it's playlist you want to be as close to the top as possible um but you know when it's a playlist that has three hundred thousand regular listeners even if you're at the bottom you, you're going to get thousands of plays um but you have to appreciate that you're getting a play because people are listening to a list that there's no guarantee that they're going to like you so when you when you get like pumped like that, you will expect that your um, you know your number of tracks they listen to per listener is going to drop. I mean, yeah, there's there's lots you can talk about this sort of stuff and how that affects people's like mental health, how that affects their self worth, like you know. And again, it's like just education. Like you need to kind of. I mean, I'm glad I'm coming at this when I am slightly older, slightly wiser. And there's no reason you have to be old to be wise. You just need to expose yourself to to, to these things. But it, it probably is easier because, it, it, you know, the emotional response is is completely natural. You know, when you when you when you make music, and you're putting your heart and soul, and you, you know, it's your passion, it's your love out there. And people might say negative things, or 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 the, the stats are telling you you know, negative things, you, you can't help but to take it personally. Sometimes you've just got to, you've just got to realize it's all just part of your journey and just got to keep, keep wading through it. Very true. Very true. Mental health is a, a difficult thing to manage, especially, I think, especially online. Like it's a whole new world for this kind of thing, really. Oh yeah. I mean, I work in social media, so I kind of see all of this all the time. It's, it's horrendous. It's amazing how quickly like things escalate to death threats. <laughs> like it is, you know, there's, you know, you, you do kind of get a bit desensitized to it, but it, when you, when you actually reflect on it, it's pretty shocking. Well, that was an abrupt end, wasn't it? But as I said, the next half of the interview will be in next week's episode. It's really worth tuning in for because there's loads of great takeaways and ideas and thoughts for bands that are worth thinking about and absorbing. That is it for this week's episode of the Music Survivor Guide. If you enjoyed it, then please leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. I really appreciate every single one of those. Please also share it with any friends and bandmates if you thought it was useful, if there's things you want to talk about and discuss from this episode. Finally, we really appreciate all of you, so if you're interested, there is a community on Facebook called the Music Survivor Guide Community. Hop over there for chats about music and band life with other musicians and industry people, and I will see you next time. <laughs>